Perhaps many of you who were Christ now stand baffled by the unshared burdens and the unrelieved sorrows that came with the past year. You cry out in protest, Christ has not helped me. My prayers are unanswered. My trust has been misplaced. The power of heaven is broken. But will you measure God with the yardstick of twelve short months when a thousand years in his sight are but as yesterday when it is past? Will you dictate to God and say that he must answer your selfish prayers, that he must help you here now and in this way? Would you pluck the green fruit before it ripens in the orchard of God's grace? Or believe with all your souls that if in the past Christ's miraculous power fed the hungry, cheered the destitute, healed the sick, and strengthened wavering lives, he is the same today, and that if it be in accord with our soul's salvation, he will invoke the resources of his omnipotence to guide, guard, and protect you in his own better way, to his own happier purpose. Welcome, everyone. This is A Word Fitly Spoken. I'm Willie Grills here with Zell and Heidi. Joining us today, Adam Kuntz, to talk about preaching, in particular, the preaching of Dr. Walter A. Meyer. Gentlemen, how are you? Doing great. How are you? Doing doing fine. How is the weather in Fort Wayne? It's actually sunny and beautiful today, so uh, maybe someday my, my spinach and carrots will sprout. They've been suffering horribly under the uh, continual November we've been living in for two months. So. It's very uh, warm and uh, sunny here in Illinois as well, weather-wise. The garden is all in. It's very late, been very rainy, hard to get, hard to work the soil, but uh, everything is pretty much in, except for maybe some fun stuff that can go in later because it doesn't really matter that much. But it's good to have all that in, and the chickens are also happy, so can't. Can't complain too much on that front. Zelwyn, how about you? Oh, things are starting to warm up here, but I wouldn't say that it's really warm yet. It's still too too cold for tomatoes and stuff like that, and it probably will be for another week or so. But it is starting to be quite nice out here, actually. The, uh, the lilacs are in full bloom. The apple trees are also in full bloom, which is quite beautiful. I'm looking forward to getting into the garden more once things are a little bit more conducive to those warm weather plants. Very good. I mean, it's going to be some good uh, garden posting uh, the next several episodes, I hope. At least it won't be frost posting, and that's really what we're what we're trying to avoid here. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> so, Adam, what, what are you doing um, uh, on the campus as far as the garden? Are you digging into the ground? Are you using raised boxes or just planters? Or what, uh, what do you got going I'm dig- on? I'm, I'm digging into the ground. I mean, uh, I try to hide it so as not to mar Eros Arnon's space-age vision of uh, theological education. <laughs> but See, I think he just foresaw a future where Americans were overweight and put a bunch of staircases unnecessarily into his architecture. That's, <laughs> That's my also, theory. Right, in Indiana, where otherwise there aren't really hills, uh, at least in this part. So, <laughs> yeah, I, I don't <laughs> right. know, but he did not envision anyone. Um, I think we were all supposed to go to uh, the grocery store in extremely large automobiles with big fins on them. But <laughs> since I can't do that and I just drive a Honda Odyssey... This isn't this isn't true. No, no. He you went with your big friend automobile to the baker, the butcher, and the greengrocers. That's how it worked in better times. 
Press escape to go back. <laughs> Return to tradition by going to the baker. <laughs> right. And speaking of going back, we're here to talk about Walter Meyer again. That was a fun episode. I think it was Zelwyn and I the first time around. But we're opening with Meyer because this is actually the beginning of a new series, so to speak. What what are we going to be talking about for um, for several episodes? We're going to be looking at how men preached, what they preached about, how they applied the word of God, because we recognize preaching as absolutely essential to the church of Christ. Everything is, the gospel itself is delivered through preaching. So we want to encourage uh, the listeners, whether they regularly preach or regularly listen to preaching, to understand better what is possible in preaching, what could be done better. Whenever, especially you're looking at great preachers from yesteryear, you are stirred up to imitation, but also to considering why don't I do this? Or how is what they're doing analogous to something that I can do now? It's much more fruitful than just kind of like resting on your laurels, which is easy to do in preaching. Yeah, very well said. So we're going to be taking a look at um, kind of a wide swath of preachers from the early church to modern guys uh, like Walter Meyer and really everything in between. At least that's the plan right now. So it's going to be it's going to be a fun uh, a fun journey, I think, and we think you'll be edified by it. If not, we'll get around to UFOs and uh, more <laughs> obscure LCMS history soon enough. <laughs> well, we're now to be clear, these won't be yeah these won't be successive episodes. The the preaching Christ series will be spaced out, so there will be a break. It will, uh, but that's not your it thing. It will, and and God willing, we're looking to augment this with discussion, especially of the historic lectionary, the one year lectionary that'll be on the blog, and those will be kind of permanent resources for preachers as well as a few other things, some big and some little that we're cooking up. So we, we just, we want to help Christ church preach better and listen better to preaching. So God willing, that'll happen. Right. So keep your eyes on the website and on social media. We'll announce uh, stuff as it comes and um, we'll see what happens in the fall or autumn as some of you people. No, we just say this is an American (laughs) podcast. So we say fall. Thank you. (laughs) Good day, sir. (laughs) Well, gentlemen, so Walter Meyer, uh, a perfect person to kick off this series um, because he is a notable American preacher. I don't believe that the, that the LCMS has had anyone close to his impact in their history. Speaking for in, as far as a broad-reaching voice goes, yeah, I don't, I don't really think there's a question. And and one of the things that we'll talk about because it's used as something of a kind of, I, I don't say I say this in this case disparagingly as a kind of conspiracy theory about Walter Meyer is the fact that he was connected to so many people outside the LCMS who knew him, who appreciated his preaching, who grew from his preaching. And because he had such a such a broad impact, it's now somewhat forgotten, but you can still somewhere, some places see signs outside churches saying the Church of the Lutheran Hour. And those first spring up really because of the popularity of the Lutheran Hour uh, the LCMS, knowing that its name was not that well known in most parts of the country, would instead identify itself as the Church of the Lutheran Hour. And then people in places like Southern California or Florida or New York would say, oh, OK, I know Walter A. Meyer. That's his church. Great. I'll go to that church. That's why we have these these little metal signs in many places still. Yeah, absolutely. He um, just to sort of recap, he's a pioneer when it comes to the use of technology Really, the only technology we should have developed radio and then stopped. 
<laughs> but nevertheless, that's not what happened. So he is a radio pioneer. He, he lays down uh, really the pattern for a lot of other mass media evangelists, for good or ill, however you want to hear that. And he's, do, he's doing this program with a very little precedent. There are a few others coming up at the same time as him, but his format, his style, you know, it's 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 at least at the time unique to him. And so, yeah, he's he's speaking in the way that people often spoke on the radio there, but adapting it into this purely kind of Christian thing, and it's and with such right. a broad audience, we he he becomes eclipsed by men like Billy Graham later on, but he really is the prototype for what would come. And we don't tend to think of Lutherans that way. <laughs> no, we do not. And so it's all, <laughs> and so it's this kind of canard that says, well, because he was so different from what a lot of us became or what a lot of us are, then he must somehow be right. sub Lutheran. Right. And I just, I just don't think that that's a fair critique. I, I think one place to start is to realize that the preaching that he's doing is in certain stylistic ways very different from the way that people were taught to sound on the radio at the time, which is something noted in his own lifetime and then by later biographers. But it's also different from what pretty much everybody listening to this is accustomed to in preaching, which is Sunday to Sunday congregational preaching by the same man with a definite number of people that he's able to see. So Meyer understood what was happening over the radio not to be a replacement for church, but a way to reach people who were already engaged in listening to radio and bring them to the church through proclamation that otherwise they would never step into a church to hear. And the thousands of the dozens of thousands of letters that he received attesting to the very fact of that happening in so many people's lives explains what he was trying to accomplish and what was also then replicated in many countries by Lutherans really all over the world, using the radio as a kind of net for fishing. And then the fish would be hauled into the church. Right. And if you want to, you know, get a more detailed look at the person of Walter Meyer, uh, just check out the episode that we did. It'll be linked in the show notes um, where you can scroll back through and and find it. If you want a more in-depth discussion there. When we talk about Wham!, it's impossible not to talk about the use of technology, as we've already alluded to. And we're using technology here to reach out in a way that 10 years ago wasn't that popular. I mean, podcasts existed, but you had pretty much Adam Carolla, and that was it. Uh, so, <laughs> What a horrible world. <laughs> new mediums are, are not the worst thing in the world. It's just how can we use them well? And how can we avoid sinning and other pitfalls that come with it? In Meyer's day, it's notable that radio airtime was very expensive and somewhat hard to get unless you did like he did and, you know, build your own station on the campus of St. Louis there. But at least initially, very expensive to get into. And then you had to build your audience. And this is the day of AM radio so that your audience is much broader. So in a way, it's kind of analogous to the internet broadcast, except that internet broadcasting is relatively cheap, uh, despite what all of these requests for donations might have you believe. And <laughs> of course, the, the audience is potentially the entire world. And so it, it is pertinent to us, um, especially during all of the COVID-19 stuff where 
pastors are for the first time experimenting with media, experiment, or excuse me, experimenting with audio and visual mediums, so that we you will learn to recognize and perhaps appreciate Wham a little bit more because preaching to a camera or preaching to a microphone is appreciably different from preaching to your congregation. And so you might find your own preaching changing a little bit, not necessarily, not doctrine, of course, but style will change, volume. I mean, all of these little things that make a sermon into a sermon, whether we like to admit it or not, are affected by the medium that we're right. using. Right. And, I, and it's absolutely the case with Meyer. There's a reason why he preached the way that he did. And, and not necessarily following radio rules, but trying to make the most of, say, the technology that he had and also the time that he had, which I think is most significant uh, to, what, to his sermon content. A massive lesson that he has for us in how he delivered his sermons could have applied to us before COVID-19, but it's even more applicable when you're preaching to a microphone or, or a camera you know, and you can actually gauge, especially from, you know, uh, video playback statistics, how many people are actually watching your sermon the whole way through when you're recording your services. So you can tell that, and I've already seen surveys of enormous numbers of people will start the video, or, uh, but, but they won't finish it. Or during the shutdown, they have started watching somebody who is more famous or more popular or has more social media followers. Lots of Christians in a survey that I saw yesterday, 25% in the survey, are not watching their home church's services during the shutdown. Mm -hmm. Wham knew that he had extremely limited attention spans from people who could just turn the dial. He did not have an audience that was captive by virtue of sitting in the pew. So even though their attention may wander, you're still the only show as you're looking at them. He knew that they could get rid of him quickly. So he delivered his sermons in what is constantly described in his own time and after his life as rapid fire. This was not the recommendation for professional radio announcers who should have spoken more softly with greater variation in tone than he used. But people would use adjectives such as gripping, compelling <laughs> to describe the way he sounded. And he was writing to keep and hold attention. And this is a point to, um, to bring up just uh, technologically. So he begins broadcasting in the early 30s. The earliest like pre-recorded like records, we'll say, like, like wax cylinders and other things, I mean, even into the early record era, everything sounds very harsh and loud because of the technological imitations. That was not what you wanted to have. So by the time you start getting into the 30s, and then especially into the 40s, um, with some technology that a man, you know, no less than Bing Crosby helped uh, develop, you, you began to have this softer conversational tone to broadcasting. The technology improves, the microphones are better, but Walter Meyer takes a different <laughs> approach. And that makes the man stand out. <laughs> and now he is clear, he's right. just very fast and very, I would say, urgent. There's an yes. urgency to his preaching. And that picks up. I mean, it, it's really funny. I understand people becoming a little bit uncomfortable with his style in a way, especially because they're not used to it. But Oftentimes, our guys go the other direction and end up advocating a Jonathan Edwards-style approach to the to the sermon text, where you'll just preach in a monotone, where right, any inflection right. is bad, 
because it might uh, influence people emotionally and somehow negate the holy the work of the Holy Spirit. And I, or something I think like again, that. when people think that uh, way, what they're neglecting are the technological and cultural circumstances of of Edwards's preaching. Edwards can read a manuscript that he's bound together in a little booklet in a fairly boring way because his people are so immersed in literacy that they are able to hang on words at a 45 minute to hour long clip. Wham knows he can't get away with that. Yeah. And and we should mention that that Edwards is reading in a monotone, not to make a point. That's, that's the, that's the false meme that, that he's such a Calvinist will say that he's going to read like that on purpose so that people wouldn't be influenced by his voice or something like that. It's exactly as you say, it's, it's a mark of the time. It's not him trying to do right. something novel. But you can tell from, from Wham's vocabulary how even relatively much more literate Americans could be expected to be that just possessed a radio in the 1930s, 1940s uh, than they are today. The, the nature of his biblical allusions usually assumes some very basic familiarity, even though he's very explicit about the basic demands that God has for humanity and God's provision for mankind through Jesus Christ in every single sermon, generally multiple times in each sermon. But he does sort of assume sometimes, so he'll refer, like in one place he refers allusively to Joseph of Arimathea, who, let's be honest, is a somewhat obscure Bible figure, somewhat obscure, but he refers to him as the Arimathean aristocrat, right? Which is which is what, you know, a stylist would call right. elegant variation. But today it would be like, they don't know who that is. You know, maybe even your people that show up every week don't know who that who you mean by the Arimathean aristocrat. But he does he does speak vigorously in a way that Edwards did not have to, because Edwards had, as it were, a captive audience. That if you go back far enough in American history, practically the only media really are the pastors. <laughs> right. And with Wham, you also <laughs> with Wham you also have in a, in a, in a good way, a, 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 it's almost like a war. There's a confrontational yeah. tone that he takes when dealing with his opponents. And also when dealing with people who are hardened right. in their sin. And so he, he does not pull punches uh, when dealing with atheist or atheistic arguments, for example, or, you know, other, other groups of, of non-believers or scoffers or, or whatever the group is. He does not shy away from things. He does not attempt to soften his message to appeal to some broader audience. That's the interesting thing. Uh, where, where today, by and large, religious media is so softened, uh, you could you could sleep all night. Yeah, and I think you, that, that's right. I think yeah. you can hear a lot of times when we are preaching about religion is that what we want to do is to accept many media narratives or maybe sometimes all of them about religion and Christianity and then prove how actually we're different from all those other guys. You know, we're we're not we're not. We're right, we're the right. cool we're not, guys. They're they're judgmental. We're not judgmental. They're legalistic. We're not legalistic. And basically, you let Hollywood carve out where you're allowed to be Christian, and then you insert the gospel into that small portion of somebody's life. Wham is preaching about a much wider array of topics generally as a way always of proclaiming the gospel of the crucified and risen Jesus. But he's handling things such as. Divorce, ingratitude, unemployment, famine, industrial strife, any number of things 
are discussed in any given sermon with statistics and quotations and lots of other things. And we can talk about his preparation in the next segment. Right. I mean, how, how many how many preachers give you a sermon on not just the gospel of Christ, but on the wickedness of war profiteering? <laughs> right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's constant discussion. I mean, before and after World War II of how how brutal and militaristic mankind is becoming. You just don't hear this stuff anymore. <laughs> right. Maybe we can bring it back. But first, we've got to take a quick break. We'll be right back with more Word Fitly Spoken. A Word Fitly Spoken is like apples of gold and pictures of silver. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. The Word, front and center, in doctrine, in history, in life. That's the mission of A Word Fitly Spoken. We've got more on the way. Stay tuned. We'll be right back. Welcome back, everyone. You are listening to Word Fitly. I'm Willie Grills, Zellin Heidi here, and Adam Kuntz talking Wham's preaching. Well, all right, we talked about his style, his background a little bit. Now let's take a look at his sermons. Like, what are some typical themes that we find? What is dominating uh, Wham's preaching? Adam? Yeah, well, very basically, they are unrelentingly evangelistic. Wham constantly described what he was trying to achieve through founding the Lutheran Hour and KFUO, something he had already been doing uh, in the Walther League Messenger before, before that time, and that is proclaiming the gospel to America. Now, this might seem sort of strange, but remember that Wham grows up in Boston not exactly a hotbed of uh, confessional Lutheranism, conservative Lutheranism, just numerically. Uh, not speaking of statistics, we love you, James Hopkins. You're doing great things. Right. And thanks for listening, James Hopkins. Yeah, there's just not a lot going on as far as numbers. And so Wham grows up in a milieu where you have to communicate the distinctives of confessional Lutheranism to people not already familiar with them. That is going to make a person naturally focus more on communication of the gospel. And this becomes a, a focus for him already before he even is called to Concordia Seminary St. Louis. We want to put to bed a couple of, I think, uh, misconceptions about Wham's preaching today. And one is that he is insufficiently Lutheran. That's maybe the most basic one. If you look at the content of his sermons, and there are numerous volumes available generally as used books, you can pick them up cheaply, you can find that he communicates the gospel of Christ's atoning death and resurrection for the sake of the world very, very clearly in every sermon I've ever read. I have not read all of them, but all of them that I have read in a variety of volumes or listened to, and that's all in the show notes, everything we could find on the internet available to you. You can hear his voice, how he 
how he alliterates, how he moves quickly, how he moves logically. When you listen to these or you read these, you can see that the that Christ is absolutely at the center of every sermon. The reason, however, that he will talk about other th- other issues of the day and will not necessarily go into enormous depth on a question such as, I don't know, uh, the nature of the election controversy, something that some of us around here <laughs> love to talk about, is because it is simply not germane to his audience. In addition to that, yeah, but but, uh, in addition to that, he actually, his probably most intensive pastoral work was with German prisoners of war in the Boston area when he was a graduate student at, at Harvard in Old Testament. And real, so understand that this is a man who, although he spends most of his life communicating in English, also could preach fluent sermons in German to people who, again, he could not presume shared his convictions. And so something that you see throughout his preaching is something that, you know, I, I would always think about like on a Christmas Eve or an Easter Sunday or a funeral where you know that the congregation is not almost certainly uniformly in agreement with you on the significance of the things that you're discussing at Christmas or Easter or the funeral of a Christian. And for him, that is a constant of his proclamation, really from the beginning of his pastoral career all the way to the end. One thing that I think we could take away from that, maybe as a kind of application, something I think that we struggle with from time to time, is making our preaching fit the occasion. Mm Mm-hmm. And I don't mean preaching topically. I mean, actually, you know, like you say, kind of matching the the audience we're actually speaking to. Because mm-hmm. I think sometimes when we are preaching or sometimes in the ways that we are sometimes taught to preach or, you know, other people preach, it w- doesn't really matter what context it's being preached in. Right. You know, right, right. Like I could like I could pick up this sermon and go to a completely different congregation that I've never met before and do the same thing without changing anything about it. <laughs> yeah. And I don't know if that's really helpful, you know? <laughs> well, it, isn't that the advantage of the three-year lectionary? You get your three years of sermons, you move on to a new call at the beginning of year A, <laughs> and you never have to write again. <laughs> Oof. I know, I, I've Oof. never thought of that. <laughs> <laughs> that advice is free. Oh, thank and, you. But seriously, why not? If, if you don't... If you don't believe that at least some context is important, then why why not? Right. You know, there there is this human element to it that makes a lot of Lutherans uncomfortable, because in in a in a sense, the message must be tailored to the person hearing it, otherwise it won't be effectual. We can preach in a language they don't understand, and it still be a, fa- a doctrinally faithful, biblically faithful message, but if they don't understand it, it's not going to do them any good. It, 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 the Word doesn't work magically in that way. I mean, outside of Pentecost, but even then, what's the message of Pentecost? Right, um, It's in their own languages, and it's repent and believe. And I, I think if if you you listen to to Walter Meyer's sermons or or you read them, you will learn a lot of history that you did not know. Some of it is completely forgotten now, such as there was massive harvest failure in the United States in the year 1930. I had no idea, and that is because not that his exegesis is context dependent. The Bible is the Bible is the Bible, but the world that has to have that message 
illustrated and applied to its situation does change. And therefore, it's not that his exegesis would necessarily be vastly different from your own, but his illustrations and his applications are generally very timely. So you'll learn things about home front conditions during the Second World War, or that there was massive labor unrest throughout the United States through much of the 1930s. You might have been able to guess that from knowing that the Great Depression occurred, but you wouldn't know exactly what had occurred. But his illustrations and his applications are not really transferable. Therefore, that time and that place, even as broad as his audience was. Well, and let me speak on his illustrations for just a moment. They're, they're very timely and they're very important illustrations. He's speaking to the issues that really trouble people. Today, a lot of times when we hear illustrations, it's either, let's say, uh, in years past, silly jokes, or nowadays, most likely, pop culture references. And that's not really the same. That you know, th- This isn't the same thing we're talking about. Wham is going, we have crop failures, people are suffering, the Lord hears your suffering. And there's a lot of that in our preaching, too, don't get me wrong. But in a broad sense... You never heard Walter Meyer, for example, being like, it's like that Cab Calloway song <laughs> or or something like that, where today, uh, like a pastor is basically just juggling Funko Pops in the pulpit in some places or in front of the plexiglass stand or in front of the teleprompter. The illustrations are meaty and important. And that and that is certainly important for our preaching. I mean, and again, I hate to keep using COVID-19, but that's where we're at right now. People are mentioning that in their sermons, and I don't think that's necessarily bad. Now, an overabundance, yeah, it might be. But to mention economic issues or unemployment issues in your sermons is not a bad thing at all. Right. Sometimes our sermons take on an air of timelessness that isn't good, because they're, they're, they could be preached anywhere so that that, that that word doesn't really go out to anyone in any particular way. And that's not the case with Wham!, The illustrations also are not used by him as mere analogies for the gospel. Instead, he will will bring up someone's life condition or he'll he'll often have paragraphs where when he's doing a set of rhetorical questions to set up for a direct appeal to them to believe the gospel, similar to the Philippian jailer, he'll have a set of rhetorical questions that will match a wide swath of American society. And that understanding of people's life conditions was gleaned by a system of information collection, which was rather legendary. So this is not, the application here is not that you need 10 uh, four drawer filing cabinets in your office, pastor, you know, your storage system may vary, but he would constantly be collecting information from books and magazines and newspapers, the the media of his time for what is going on. How do people talk about life? How do they explain things to themselves? What is sort of their way of coping with adversity that doesn't have the gospel? Uh, What are they saying because they don't know the gospel in order to cope with harvest failure or labor unrest or whatever it may be? And then the gospel is applied to those life conditions rather than saying, to give you an example from today, Original sin is like the coronavirus or something, right? You don't <laughs> right. you don't want to do that because what you're doing then is you're, this is literally Harry right, Potter, right? You don't you don't want to make the gospel sound like an exit from everyday life. You want the gospel to be applied to the everyday life that people are experiencing, and, and that's and, and in that way the preaching is immediate 
the preaching is important for the person and the person will actually listen to what is being right. said. The other way around is so much like a sales pitch mm-hmm. or, or excuse me, a sales tactic. And I think that a lot of people see that they know what, you know, they can see that this is just a setup to get to something right. Instead of an actual, instead of an actual problem with an actual answer or, or that, that, that they understand. Right, exactly. Okay. And, and so, I mean, and this is the key here. It's about, you can build a beautiful message as he can and a very carefully crafted message, but does the point hit home? And all of his sermons that we see are coherent and they're clear and they have a point to them. And that a, a point that you can see that someone who's coming into this with limited knowledge would still be able to get the point at the end of it. There's very little platitudes. There's not some kind of internal theological vocabulary that you necessarily have to know. There are words like atonement that need to be said, of course, but I'm talking about particularly niche terms here that we can find ourselves trapped in. I mean, I think Wim, though, did have an advantage of having a full-time secretary he could dictate to. And, And so when you're speaking aloud, you can really craft your words very well. But, you know, we don't all have that luxury. But he is very... What's the word you want to use here, guys? Intentional about the wording that he uses? There's a a piece of writing that's linked in the notes. It's by a guy named Lester Zeitler, who wrote shortly after Wham's death and had access to his personal library. So he knew, for instance, that Wham actually had zero books in his very large library about speech, (laughs) which is is a little surprising, (laughs) but uh, he didn't. But he does tell you things such as, he spent 20 hours a week on his Lutheran hour sermon that was estimated at that time. 1956 is when Zeitler is writing to be roughly three to four times longer than the average American minister was taking in 1956 on his sermon. So the amount of time that you're using every week to craft your words, uh, to craft your applications, your illustrations, to do your exegesis, that's going to vary. But I think what one thing that is uh, interesting is how much, how much can get done if you're simply taking twice as much, not three or four times as much, but twice as much time as someone else is on thinking through what you're going to do? Because my my intuition is that our age is not prone to being overly careful or to being overly precise. We're prone instead to a kind mm-hmm. of laziness, which is due to being so often consumers of media rather than producers. Right. Well, I mean, it's it's the world of, of tweets. It's the world of the provocateur, even the Christian provocateur, which is, it's basically get the greatest amount of attention with the shortest amount of words that you can. And that's, right. that's, not, that's not good for anything other than ad, ad dollars. Wham himself, though, was basically, I mean, he, I imagine he was being so careful because of the extreme time constraints that he had. I mean, he had to proclaim his message within a specific, very specific time frame, which was in in some sense somewhat constraining for him. And so for that reason, I think he had to be extra careful because, you know, he had right. to make every right. minute yeah. count. Which, I mean, I, I think I mean, I think that honestly, uh, how is that not still incredibly applicable? Because even his shortest sermons are generally as long as many of our average sermons today, if not longer, that is 15 minutes is still 
<laughs> you know, I mean, he he wasn't doing sort of like eight minute special sermons, even at even at his shortest. And I think sometimes he was allowed to go longer. The printed sermons are going to be longer than what was often delivered, but. And the manuscripts even longer still. I, I think. I mean, I, I think the the principle that you that your hearers' time and attention is worth care. Understand that when you're thinking that way, not only will you simply get better at what you're doing, but it's also easier to make an impact when what you're doing is carefully done. You're basically getting more bang for your buck as far as persuasion, growth in knowledge impact overall of your sermon than if, you know, the first five, six minutes of your sermon or sort of the middle seven minutes or whatever are just sort of like fluff and everyone tunes out because they've heard it this way before. They've heard this almost verbatim before. Well, let's um, shift gears a little bit. We've got a few minutes left in this segment. Let's talk about Wham! the American And, and the, the commies. commies, right? Let's start with, with, right. with yeah, Wham, yeah. Wham is American. Sometimes this is mistaken, maybe for a flavor of patriotism that we don't have anymore. He never really speaks about America jingoistically. So, a basic distinction that you want to go into this with every time he discusses America, which is rather frequently, is that he understands America to be uniquely blessed, but not uniquely virtuous right? So we have gifts that no one else has. For instance, when he's talking about the Great Depression, he makes the point that people in Great Britain are experiencing the very same economic conditions with much greater harshness than Americans. So he'll say, and this is kind of just an interesting historical tidbit, in America in 1930, there's one automobile for every six Americans, which sounds like a second world country to us, or maybe third. But in Britain in 1930, there's one automobile for every 16 Britons. So he likes to point out how even in America, when it's bad, it is uniquely better than basically anywhere else in the world, uniquely blessed, but not uniquely virtuous because he sees a materialism, an obsession with things and wealth that is a kind of canker in America that can grow into something that would eventually destroy us. So when he talks about communism, which he does, and we'll probably talk about in the next segment, he talks about it more and more as the years go on. He doesn't recognize the problem in the Soviet Union as ultimately distinct from the spiritual problems that Americans have. That is that the Bible becomes increasingly less important in American public life more and more. So his quotes about the Bible from public figures are almost uniformly 19th century men. And that also, like the Soviet Union, an obsession with material conditions and material improvement to the neglect of the spirit infests America. Right. Wham is very concerned. Yeah, he's very concerned about avarice in, in his preaching. And that's very interesting because that, that is the problem with both communism and, of course, many forms of capitalism as well. Uh, greed, I mean, materialism is greed, okay, whether we want to admit it or not. The two are, uni- are intimately intertwined. And nowadays, a lot of the preaching, even from otherwise solid pulpits, is, is a, a bit materialistic. God becomes your Santa Claus, or, you know, let's put it this way. Wham! did not appeal to the term first article gifts quite as much as we do today. Got 
not to put too fine a point on it. But we're coming up on the second break. More on materialism and Walter Meyer right after this. The Word of God is living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. The Word of God is the center of our faith life. Join us every Thursday for a new podcast available on iTunes and your favorite podcasting app. Follow us on Twitter at WordFitly. Check us out on Facebook, facebook.com slash WordFitly. And check out our website, wordfitlyspoken.org. We thank you for listening and stay tuned for more WordFitly Spoken. Welcome back, everyone. You are listening to A Word Fitly Spoken. I'm Willie Grills here with Zoe and Heidi and Adam Kuntz talking the, about the preaching of Dr. Walter A. Meyer. Well, we touched a little bit about Walter the American and on communism, so let's continue that discussion about Walter and politics—excuse me, about <laughs> Walter. Too much word fitly in my life about Walter <laughs> and, uh, and communism. The preaching on communism becomes more frequent as the years go on. So the broadcasts last for, what, roughly 20 years. And uh, the preaching on communism amps up, although it's there from the first. This would be entirely during Stalin's reign. And the question is why he discusses this so pointedly. One thing to point out is that this is not actually unusual. In fact, it's it's normal in Missouri Synod history up to Wham's lifetime. So the complete avoidance of discussion of anything that could be deemed political or controversial is uh, not actually strange. If you go back and you look at, for instance, Walther's discussion of communism and socialism or preaching on a wide variety of political topics, the suffrage of women, industrial unions, stuff like that in the Missouri Synod. So Walter Meyer is actually continuing a tradition that maybe dies in later years, but actually wasn't strange in his own time. He understands communism to be a complete assault on Christianity. And therefore, he's not talking about it in the sense of telling people uh, for whom to vote, but trying to expose what he understands to be an ideology that, that wants to destroy Christianity and therefore must be preached against in the same way that we do still preach sermons against, for instance, acceptance of abortion, because we see it as an assault on God's law against, you know, innocent human beings. Well, and it's an interesting thing. A lot of people have this conception of wham in their minds as really beating the war drum. And that's not true. Yeah, that's the opposite. (laughs) Prior to World War II, yeah, yeah, it's the opposite. He is preaching anti-war messages, you know, well into into the World War II era. And yet, because of his... Um, appeal to Americans, and then especially because of his later anti-communist rhetoric, he is seen as some kind of you know warmonger, stars and stripes kind of guy, and nothing could be further from the truth. And the thing is, this is easily seen because, as we mentioned at the beginning, you can go open 
you can go get these sermon books and just see for yourself what the man was saying. He got he, he got a little bit of heat for being so anti-war. Yeah. But, you know, it is kind of a Christian thing to not uh, clamor for mass loss of human life. Right. Even if we're going to enter a war, to, rec- to somehow celebrate war in and of itself is... Correct. I, Correct. Yeah. It, yeah. Yeah, and it's one thing to be patriotic during the war, and th- and that's fine. That's that's not a bad thing to be a patriot, but to just have this lust for conflict is not in accord with Christian values. Right, and it's interesting as the American forces spread out over really the globe during the Second World War, Wham works very diligently to get trans to get broadcast stations available even over shortwave in very far-flung places that could actually reach the troops, as well as producing devotionals aimed specifically at the American troops, he himself having been a chaplain in the First World War. That is to be distinguished from celebrating war in and of itself, or thinking that it is, you know, your country is always right. In fact, after the Second World War, uh, the brutality Toward and the and the callousness toward human life that he describes, for instance, in the sermon in the show notes from 1948. Some of that it's very hard to see how that's not aimed also at us, because uh, yeah. we we did destroy the most Christian city in Japan in dropping <laughs> atomic weapons on another on another country. He's he's aiming his preaching not at easy targets, but at the people who are listening to him, who could be seduced by materialism, but could also be seduced by a kind of jingoism that doesn't recognize what is spiritually happening to America as we are, for instance, dropping atomic weapons on other people. Right. And, uh, you know, so uh, we did an episode on Dresden when? (laughs) (laughs) I guess we'll get there, right? (laughs) Eventually. (laughs) We've actually been trying to bust a lot of these myths because this, these myths around him cause a lot of people not to look into what he was doing. And I think, and I think that they're missing out if they, if they allow these, these critiques to color their perception of, of reality there. So he's not into war. He doesn't love materialism. And let's talk uh, just a few more minutes about him and materialism, if you'd like. Yeah. Yeah. There's a, there's a concern that especially during the great depression. So these are a little easier to see from the, from the sermons in the 1930s that Americans who are poor will think that God is far away from them and does not care about them. Although he'll point out something such as if you have a radio, you're able to listen to what I'm saying right now. You might not be as horribly off as you imagine. Conversely, and more frequently, for instance, in sermons, especially on Thanksgiving day, He understands Thanksgiving to be a very important holiday, which, of course, warms my heart. He says, for a lot of people, Thanksgiving is just about turkey and football. He says that in the 1930s. (laughs) 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 It's just about turkey and football, but this is a wonderful American day because it allows us the opportunity to give give thanks to the God who has made uh, all the things that we enjoy here possible. Again, this is a man who is not conflating church and state. He wrote a whole book, I believe in the 1920s, about why Thomas Jefferson was so correct about and why the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod supports Jeffersonian understandings of religious liberty. Very interesting book. Now, like so much else. Yeah, the Jeffersonian ideal of religious liberty, right? That's that Like work. so much else forgotten, uh, but we'll bring it back. 
he understands uh, Thanksgiving to be a time when we recall that the fact that we are here and that we enjoy all that we do is due to the God who has blessed us, not due to our own achievements, right? So he sees a kind of, if I can say it within our own jargon, but he does use this as well in some of his sermons, a kind of works righteousness built into materialism, a kind of a destructive self-sufficiency that forgets who the giver of the of the blessings is. And that's why it's such a frequent theme in his sermons that it, materialism is kind of, he doesn't really say individualism, which I find is much more often the note in our modern preaching. And I'm, I'm never quite sure what is meant by that word, but that a focus on material possessions is really kind of the the, the most threatening false god on the American landscape. And so with that said, if he's able, if he's at that time even, you know, poking at turkey and football, which would probably even get you in hot water today. And I love Thanksgiving, by the way. And I love Thanksgiving church services. And I and I feel that I can safely say that here <laughs> in a day where all the edgelords don't like Thanksgiving services, but I do. This is the supportive group. This is a safe group <laughs> That's for you. Right. Really. I'll, I'll put on my black gown and my preaching tabs and preach every Thanksgiving. <laughs> Until the holiday is outlawed and renamed to something more politically correct. (laughs) And even then, I'll still do it. So with that said, though, he is not afraid to be pointed when it comes to these kinds of issues. And so he'll he'll attack something like football, which we all know is more than a game to a lot of people. And so he'll also attack or go after topics like marriage and divorce. And we already talked about war profiteering, but he talks about other things. I mean, even national budgetary issues and, and, and things like that, or, you know, the issues of unemployment that people face. Right. So he is not afraid to tackle topics that would be seen as touchy subjects, even right. today. And and what it, what it's doing is reaching down into people's lives, taking something with which they're already familiar and using it, as we said before, to proclaim the gospel to people who he's generally assuming and how he talks to them do not know the gospel. Now, when he talks to them, he's going to use the second person almost exclusively. And what that does is that brings an immediacy to the preaching that says, you know, this discussion of naval armaments, which he does talk about in a sermon, <laughs> and how we're spending so much money building, you know, putting more guns on our boats. And my dad was in the army. I I don't care what the correct terminology is here. Putting more guns, putting more guns on our boats (laughs) while Americans are starving. This is a problem. See what what are the things that we actually care about in this country? He's going to take that and then address that person in the second person who may or may not know anything or care anything about naval armaments and say, are you a person who values being ready for conflict over feeding the hungry? And then he'll go into Christ talking about feeding the hungry. So he's always trying to bring this back to an immediate person-to-person address through the radio that will grip the hearer, and the hearer will not be able to let go until he's listening to him preach the gospel. One might say full sternness and full sweetness. <laughs> what? One one might. And the, the, the preaching textbook at Concordia Seminary St. Louis at the time from what I understand, would be Reinhold Pieper's homiletics, which uses as its model for who's the best preacher we can think of. It's in German. Best preacher we can think of throughout that book is C.F.W. Walther. So I don't want to hear an (laughs) argument here that Walther understood law and gospel, but then we forgot it until like the 1950s. Right. 
We forgot it until we just, and then jettisoned <laughs> right. the whole law part. So, all right then. That said, he is going to make an appeal right. to his listeners. He's at, he's going to make at least two appeals, right? Often an appeal to stop being right. a horrible person right. and to love your neighbor, which is good. And of course, the most significant appeal would be to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. And one word unsettles many Lutherans. And that word is accept, with an A, not accept, accept. Accept the Lord Jesus Christ. If you will accept him, he will be your savior, that kind of language. And he does use this a lot. Can we use that kind of language, or should that language give us pause? Why or why not? I think the reason it changes is at least twofold. One is the discontinuance of the King James Bible and its vocabulary and how it uses words such as accept or receive as imperatives for generally the same group of Greek stems. So the terminology is not understood as indicating a kind of synergism that would say, you know, you you do your part, Jesus did his, you do your part. Uh, something Wham actually explicitly rejects in many places. <laughs> that idea. It's it's not understood Absolutely. for people for whom the King James Bible is their way of understanding God's word in English to be synergistic because it's Bible language, which is why you find it all over Missouri Synod sermons. If you go back and you get the old Concordia pulpit series, it's all over the place because right. no one thinks of it because it's Bible language as wrong. Right. Unfortunately, people are filtering wham through the later evangelistic right. movements that would come. And and I think that's the only way to look at it. I don't I mean, he's a fan of Billy Sunday, but I don't I don't think it's fair to, to speak of him as a revivalist no. in the same no. terms. Now, he, now there are similarities. He's very energetic and he reaches a wide audience. But theologically, they're rather different. Right. And it's, it's um, but he does. Clear. He admires Billy Graham's. Yeah, he admires Billy Sunday's preaching. Mm-hmm. This is true. But in a way that, okay, do we have criticisms with Billy Graham, but can we not admire the man's zeal for the loss? <laughs> is that okay to do? Can I admire, can I, can I say I don't like his Arminianism, but I have to respect someone who dedicated his life to reaching people for Christ? Right. Can I, right, I mean, right. again, without endorsing too much, I mean, that's, I think that's what we have with Billy Sunday here. And we have gotten so, there's so much vitriol today that even saying something nice about someone that we don't totally agree with is seen as a complete endorsement of everything that they did. Right. And I, I think, and that's certainly not the you're, case. You're totally right. Because I think that the, the, the reason, and you know, you can look at it chronologically or you can see it, the analogy that I see is that the other reason that we have so much trouble ex- accepting this language. I did, that didn't. I didn't mean to make a pun, but I, but it happened. Is because we have the same intensity of opposition to American evangelicalism that in Wham's own day the Missouri Synod generally had reflexively against Roman Catholicism, and therefore anything that sounds anything like American evangelicalism, even where in the case of Billy Graham, that man is in some ways consciously imitating Walter A. Meyer. <laughs> Yeah, well, I mean, he's he he is a huge fan. It is safe to say that if it were not for Walter Meyer, you would not have Billy Graham. Yeah, right, uh, exactly. And now, okay, now we've turned a whole, but we've just 
pull the rug out from everything we built up <laughs> for a lot of people. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, he, yeah, you're absolutely right. Uh, sorry. Well, yeah, I, I think, I think one thing to recognize about Meyer and the way that he's able to appropriate certain facets of other people's successful preaching outside of his own denomination, which to be clear, the man had the talent to succeed at practically anything. And he chose to devote himself to propagating Lutheranism in a way that no one else was doing. So I I don't think that it's simple lack of reflection or incapacity to be theologically critical that you want to say when you say, why does he admire Billy Sunday or how can he you know, impact other parts of American Christianity. I think one thing that the man did not possess that a lot of us struggle with is a kind of churlishness about other Christians. And that is that I think we think that unless we have a kind of churlish, grumpy attitude toward people with whom we, for legitimate exegetical theological reasons, disagree, Unless we manifest a kind of grumpiness about them, we cannot be sound Lutherans. Right. That, um, you know, malcontentedness, malcontentedness is not necessarily a virtue. You know, the epistles have something to say about malcontented uh, teachers, but we won't get into that. But you're right. Churlishness, churlishness, great word. And and also, if if not that, just this this snark as virtue that we also tend to uphold. It's, it's not good. Which I mean, churlish and snarky might be synonyms at this point. You're absolutely right. Zelwyn, you're being quiet over there. No, that's that's fine. Like I say, I've, I've mostly just been listening through this conversation, and I think it's a good one. If only because some of the things that it makes you reflect on are how, you know, a lot of these things can be applied, and also this reflection of this, this churlishness that you're talking about, you know, and it makes you think about your own relationship with other Christian groups and, and how we are presenting ourselves. And sometimes I wonder if we don't have a kind of defensiveness about our position in American uh, Christianity, because, you know, we've never been any major, major, major influence. And so we, we kind of try to distinguish ourselves through this kind of churlishness. And I'm, I'm not sure that that's the way to go. Right. Honestly. And I, I think that is, that is also something that not only in the text of his sermons, but also in the, the use of, you know, well-presented Lutheran church music before and after each sermon on the Lutheran hour. And in many other ways, I think the, the tactic that, that Walter Meyer took in his presentation of the faith was to be positive, and that is not, I think, a Pollyanna-ish ignorance of how other people disagree with you. He does, for instance, you know, in, in, in many places discuss Lutheran distinctives or refer to this church as a church of the Bible and, and unreservedly stands on God's word. The positive presentation of truth is generally, I think he's very rhetorically insightful in this way, positive presentation of truth is generally much more convincing than a cutting down of how everyone else is wrong and why everyone else is wrong. People are apt to literally or figuratively tune out at that point. Yeah, an affirmative rather than a negative theology is is important. Um, th- this we confess, will you lay hold of this too? Right. Because if we're only defined as what we're not, there's really nothing for anyone to, right. to lay hold of, at least right. not explicitly. By inference, maybe, but that's not really the the pattern laid down in scripture when it comes to evangelistic preaching. 
And he had many correspondents from other denominations who recognized that he was distinctively Lutheran and thanked him for not compromising on that, even though they themselves disagreed with him. And he also had letters, and you can see this in his son's biography of him, from people who became Lutheran or went back to church and went to a Lutheran church because of his preaching. So he was uh, sufficiently Lutheran to get thousands of people to hear him as such. So I think the benefit of the doubt is it should, should be given him. And I do think it's, if I remember correctly too, there was also tremendous pressure within his own time to kind of aim for a kind of middling, you know, lowest common denominator kind of Christianity mm-hmm. in presenting it on the radio. Right. And he very consciously, of you know, went against that, right. presenting you know a a Lutheranism in an age that tried to get him to compromise. Right. Yeah, he would not go along with being simply slotted into the Protestant slot in certain broadcasting systems, and that's why he had to start the Lutheran Hour as its own separate, distinctive program, so that he would not have to be theologically muzzled. Right. Well, guys, that's going to wrap this one up. Great intro to the series. Thank you all for your time. We're looking forward to the next installment. This has been a Word Fitly Spoken. If you like what you heard and want to know more, check us out, wordfitlyspoken.org, facebook.com slash wordfitly, or Twitter at wordfitly. I'm Willie Grills, here with Zoe and Heidi and Adam Kuntz. God love you, and God bless. That while incompleteness is the curse of our existence and the hard struggles of life often remain unfinished or unrewarded, the greatest blessing of heaven and earth combined, the salvation of our souls, has been finished with divine finality, completed forever by the substitutionary suffering of our ever-blessed Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. For in one of the shortest of the Savior's seven utterances on the cross, it is only a single word in the original Greek, but what a blessed faith-building word of eternal promise it is. Jesus puts the keystone into the arch of our Christian faith and shows us the completed redemption as he speaks this divine and deathless assurance, It is finished! St. John chapter 19, verse 30. Let us study the glory and the comfort of these three words as I employ them with the help of the Holy Spirit to bring you the most blessed of all messages that the radio can ever convey, the promise of salvation completed, the immovable assurance that in Christ our redemption is eternally perfected.